Have you ever listened to this podcast and thought to yourself, man, I could do better than that. They don't prepare anything. They just sort of talk about things that I'm talking about with my friends in basketball. Mike rambles way too much. Like Ben says holistically way too much. Like, man, these guys, I could do better than them. First of all, you're probably right. And second of all, and even better news for you, you now have the chance to do it. I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Sounds like something we could have used before we started this podcast, but alas, it might be too late for us, but it's not too late for you. If you want to host a podcast and you just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&A with Blue Wire's top podcasters, which is definitely not Ben and I, but you know maybe you'll get unlucky one day, access to our community Discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks, all of which that we have violated. And on top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. The best part is you can get all this for only $15 a month. The same rate as any other hosting site would charge you just for the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch, you have an existing show you want to grow, or you're just thinking to yourself, yeah, this isn't that hard. I could totally do this way better than these people. Hustle is an open door to leveling up your sports podcast experience. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com join. That's bwhustle.com slash join. All right, Ben, what's up? Hey, Mike. Not much, man. I'm, uh... I'm uh, uh, getting getting into the groove of a, a short basketball week here. I think folks like yourself deserve an all star break as well. Yeah, the big break for my non job. <laughs> big break for my non job. Yeah. Um, hi, we're. I've never done this before. I just texted a link out. This is. We're gonna do this sort of live video chat each week. We'll probably turn most of them into a podcast. I'm Mike. That's Ben. Ben will sometimes be here when he's not too busy at his day job. Um, and because it's a limited upside podcast, Ben, or live chat or whatever the hell this is, uh, we didn't prepare anything. Yeah. No, we didn't. But if you want to talk about, I'd love to talk about uh, your most recent newsletter was on a topic near and dear to my heart. I'd love to start there and, and, and okay. go from there if, if you want. Um, okay. Not, you know, I don't know if everyone had the ability to to read it or if you're already subscribed to Mike's newsletter. But uh, this week was on Joel Embiid. Uh, Mike, if you want to kind of give a little bit of a synopsis, that'd be great. Um, and there, then we can talk about the chat function in this thing, right? Ah, here we go. Okay. Sorry, I'm still figuring this out. Yeah, so if you're listening to this live, I'm going to somehow find a way to post a link to the piece. Uh, my last newsletter was about Joel Embiid. And you know how, like, I mean, I don't know how many writers are in here, but you know how, like, you have, like, about, like, 25, 30 th- things you write down. They're like, oh, this seems like a really interesting idea. And you're perhaps too uh, too lazy to actually look into them or you have 
kids or something or whatever. And like, you just sort of had this list of, of possible topic ideas just sort of sitting on your notes app somewhere or your Google mm-hmm. doc. Ben, you know what I'm talking about, right? Constantly. Yeah. That's, that's what you got, right? <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. This was one of them. And I don't know why I just decided, hey, whatever, let's just write about this one. Um, so the link is out there. It's just about, you know, Joel Embiid is probably what the most traditional low post, low post dominant center uh, in the league, right? You would probably say. Yeah, traditional. Yep. Whatever the hell that means. Yep. Uh, traditional, most shackish is sort of how I think about it. Yep. So obviously that must mean that big men are back. You can play low post basketball now. Whoopee. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, kind of. Um, but I think it's always been interesting, you know, doing a lot of this research in this book. Like, why, why, would you, why do you back your way into the basket anyway? It seems kind of inefficient. You have to turn around eventually, right? Yeah, yeah in theory, if you wanted to shoot. Yeah, well, even if you, I mean, if you didn't, then, like, you really can't see anything. I mean, that's true. But in theory, you don't, you know, if your back was to the basket the entire time, you would see the rest of the court. Uh, anyhow, go ahead, Mike. Keep going. No, you wouldn't. If you're posting up on the block, you only see the sideline. Well, yeah, I mean, I said, yeah, yeah, that's true. If you're focusing that, I suppose a post-up can occur anywhere. But if we're going with that traditional relationship here yeah. and the idea that you're about to tell us how Embiid has flipped that on its head, um, by all means... I guess the reason you post it up is because presumably your whole body is a better shield for the ball than, I don't know, your arm. Yeah, that's true. I guess that's why you would post up, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what if it's no longer true? What if, I mean, what if it never really was true? So what, what's interesting, I don't know where this curiosity peaked, but I, I could have sworn I saw like Joel Embiid try to draw a rip-through foul on like, a guard. Mm-hmm. I forget who it was. I'm sure it's happened multiple times, but it's sort of, it immediately stood out to me because he was basically trying to rip through someone who he could have just like kind of literally stomped over if he wanted to. <laughs> and yet he ripped through and I was like, well, that's interesting. Like he's turning and facing him. He's jabbing, squaring up, doing all that stuff. And he's way bigger than him. That seems like not something that post players do. And then I kept watching a lot of these games and kind of thinking about why it seemed like the Sixers had a better sense of, how to deal with his double teams, right? Mm-hmm. You would agree, Ben, that watching them, it seems like they pass out of doubles and pass into doubles and all that stuff that they couldn't do against the Celtics. They do it a lot better this year, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's completely different. I mean, part of it is when you're anticipating that, you can assess the situation through the lens of, I'm going to be doubled, so where is the second iteration of the opening going to become? If it's not the primary open pa- uh, open read, what's the secondary one? And if you're thinking of like that, you're thinking slightly more uh, pass first than shoot first, you, the openings are there. Now, uh, granted, space like that matters, you know, the, who else is on the court with you is super important. And so... Some things have changed from a player personnel standpoint, but the biggest difference is that Joel is actively looking to find the open player uh, on the read. And part of that is because of what you're saying here. It's much easier to do when you're facing up in a triple threat than it is when you're posting up with your back to the basket. Right. You can actually see, because to your point, like you said, when you throw the ball out of a double team, you're not reading the guy that, I mean, maybe you were in the pre-illegal defense era, but now, or in the illegal defense era, but now 
you're you're reading the not the guy who's double teaming you, but the guy who's zoning up. Yep. yep. Or the guys who are zoning up, and that's basically the decision you're making is like, what is that guy going to do? How do I? That's where the pass is now. Unless, of course, you beat the first guy, but generally that's not happening as often now. So if you're actually facing it, you can see all that. It's a lot easier to, to see that stuff. And so, I mean, the easy answer to why this he's better at reading double teams is they have a couple shooters on the floor now instead of Al Horford. Yeah. But, and Josh Richardson, yes, yes. Yeah, but they still have Ben Simmons, who just standing in the dunker spot. And they had Tobias Harris last year, and they tried to post him up. So I kept thinking, like, why is it so much easier this year? Like, what are they doing differently? And part of it is uh, the shooters and the spacing. But then I I remember it sort of hit me as I would watch a lot of Sixers games, and they'd throw the ball into him, and he'd turn and face, and then everybody would kind of just stand around and wait. And then if he made a move turning and facing, someone would cut, and then he'd make the right pass. But it always started with, he turned and faced the basket. And I was like, well, that's interesting. It's sort of counterintuitive to how you would traditionally go about with a guy that huge. And so mm-hmm. it occurred to me that there's a lot of advantages to that. And I think it's a huge reason why it looks like he and the Sixers are having a lot easier time with the sorts of things that good teams wouldn't let the Sixers do mm-hmm. last year. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, like it's, there's a lot of aspects to Joel's game that have, somehow gotten better this year and I, I say that as he was not a bad basketball player in the last few seasons of his career he, he's been quite dominant in spurts but the consistency the idea that he's looking to make the right pass every possession there was a, a couple uh, a sequence last night against the Pacers uh, actually three consecutive uh, offensive series where he found Furkan Korkmaz for threes essentially in the same place and it is exactly what you're talking about it's that that enjoyment of looking for the open three-point shooter who's essentially being guarded by the zoned up defensive player as opposed to dribbling into a double team or forcing something baseline and and playing into the defense's hands and so like when you watch him get joy out of a good pass you know that is that's a different mentality forget the physical aspect of it yeah the mental side of of learning what's best for the team is also what's best for your full basketball game you know, it's great. And you mentioned, like, Simmons as a dunker. Well, Simmons has got more gravity this year going way, way harder to the rim as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's the other thing we should talk about. Um, yeah. It's like he finally realized that he's, like, six foot nine and he's got a really strong chest and is scary. Man, he's yeah. trying to use him every so often when he drives. Yeah, and he, he's just looked more physically sound. I mean, look, he's the same physical player he was two months ago when he was avoiding contact, getting hit and, you know, call it meeting in the middle and losing the, the physical battle at the rim. And, you know, something flipped about a month ago. It was very obviously on display against the Jazz um, a couple, about two weeks ago now. Where yeah, that was a game that beat Miss, right? Embiid missed the game and he had 42 or whatever it was. And, and all of all of the points were, you know, it's Simmons. It's like Zion and Simmons have these shot charts where it's like all of the points are from the same place. Um, and so, uh, you know, and that was on Gobert. And then last night, you know, again, like Sixers against, uh, a, you know, Miles Turner, another good rim protector. And it's just like the, the nullification of the other team's best defensive qualities by the same two players that were tricked uh, and fooled by a lot of these defensive strategies, you know, last year, 
uh, is incredible to see. And, you know, it's been it's been awesome growth uh, to see Ben attack the rim. But that's not a lot of that is because he's more confident shooting free throws. And it, it sucks that his aggression is based upon. Well, what do you think came first? What do you think that's came first? That's, so, that's the question, right? Like, what is he? That's the question. Is yeah. he? I mean, that's sort of the question for both of them is that. I mean, the 76ers, I know they have, like, again, they have a couple other shooters, but they were, those two guys were playing quite well even mm-hmm. before, even when Steph Curry was injured or during COVID protocol. So yeah, I don't think it's just the roster. It's a new coach. Yep. Um, why? And these are all things that, like, we've been talking about, I think, on this, sh- uh, I was going to say this show, but, you know, <laughs> I feel like people have been talking about this stuff with Embiid and Simmons for, like, three years now. Right. Yeah. So yeah. why is it that it, it it hits home now? I mean, it can't. And, and and oddly, it's from the a coaching change from a guy who the stars of Doc Rivers' previous team seemed to tune him out, or that was sort of the issue, right? Is yeah. That he could he, he couldn't get through to do get Kawhi and Paul George on the same page for whatever reason, but somehow he's doing it for Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. It's not what you would have expected. <laughs> So yeah. what is going on here? Like, why is it suddenly coming together now is sort of the question yeah. I keep thinking about. No, it's a good question. I, I think there's a couple mental aspects here. And I'll say there's actually one uh, from an assistant coach standpoint. Sam Castell, I think, was about as perfect of a top assistant to have as your Ben Simmons whisperer. I, you know, is it's not lost on me. that. Why is that? Well, Doc and Cassell themselves were big guards. Um, they kind of had – you see the game from a certain perspective as a player. You're able to put that into your coaching and specifically into players who, who meet that, uh, you know, uh, most obvious aspect. But being a large player at your same position, different skill sets. Cassell specifically was a you know, heck of a mid-range jump shooter, um, and that's not, that's not Ben's game. But I think, you know, Ben mentioned it after one of the games recently. Uh, it may have been the Mavericks game. You know, accountability – this idea that if it, if you can't blame Brett Brown, then who do you blame? You're going to blame the two stars. So you come in with a new coach. There's a lot more on your shoulders to prove that it was the previous administration, um, you know, and and not you, the star player, the one you know making your max contract. Who is uh, you know uh, the Sixers are? It's impossible to break the way you think about the Sixers from the way you think about Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. And the idea that now they're those two are good enough. For them to be title contenders when last year, you know, Ben missed the playoff series and they got swept by the Celtics and it felt like, well, this is, you know, and again, quick caveat, neither of us saw this offseason coming where they were going to end up with Doc and Morey, you know, didn't think that was the way it was going to be. More and more likely than Doc, but yeah. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But I think like that changed the calculus too. And all of a sudden, Ben... You know, uh, they are running a lot more action to get him with a head of steam um, on offense, which is important. Um, and it, it doesn't hurt that Joel's become a much more willing and better passer and that there's courts, you know, the spacing is better. But, yeah, man, at the at the end of the day, I think these guys looked at themselves and Joel's 27 and Ben's 23 or 4. And, you know, this is you're in your prime now. You know, you, you get to a level where it's it's it is now or never. And if you're not making these adjustments, then you have capped your potential as a player. And I think both, both of them are guys that the entire world of NBA fans has looked at and been like, wow, the sky's the limit. If only they could right. fill in the blank. And in Joel's case, I, I never thought he'd be the best mid range jump shooter in the NBA. Um, well, why not though? I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, I mean it's, it's interesting. We say that, but like, yeah. 
I'm not sure I would have either, but like now that it's happened, it sort of makes perfect sense, right? He's got such a great touch. He's basically just sort of jabbing, 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 and basically shooting a set shot from 14 feet. Seems pretty simple to me, but it's, it's, uh, but yeah, you're right. It's not something you would have thought really. I think, uh, was Joel has also said that, uh, being a father has sort of calmed his perspective a little bit, which I thought was interesting. Um, but I mean, it's, Sometimes these things sort of have a weird uh, way of kind of, you need life experiences in order to finally get there. And there's nothing yeah. you can do to necessarily engineer them. Sometimes you just have to go through them. But the idea yeah. that like it's it's no longer on Brett Brown is interesting to segue to something else that happened yesterday. Sure. Brett Brown's former lead assistant, Lloyd Pierce. Yes. What do you think about that? I, I, I have yeah. a lot of thoughts. What do you think about that whole thing with he's, he's fired? Uh I'm not surprised, frankly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And I'm not sure that's good that that we're not surprised. Um, look, anytime that you have a top assistant who has a significantly larger resume as a head coach than you, there's going to be a little pressure on your own bench. I think there yeah. was definitely the moment Nate McMillan became the top assistant there. That pressure was always right over Lloyd's shoulder. The other aspect, obviously, is you know most coaching decisions are based, uh, you know, essentially an approximation to your expectations. The Hawks had high expectations. It doesn't help them that some other teams that were qualified well below them. I'm talking about Charlotte and the Knicks. Well. Um, Charlotte, in Charlotte's case, you know I was high on Charlotte. You were. No, you, you were. But Knicks, I'm talking no, about not like, so much. Well, yeah, the Knicks not so much, but Tibbs is a guy tried and true who brings in his own culture with him and I think, you know, had the right has the right amount of players right now who can play his system, but also young guys that are really trying to punch up. And you, there's something to be said for how hard you work. And the, the Hawks right now have been playing a different lineup essentially every night. They were without Capella to start the year, and then Gallinari got hurt, and then Bogdanovich got hurt. DeAndre Hunter got hurt, which is yep, a big exactly. And, and Trey Young has had no, by no the way nagging issues. Yep. <laughs> the day after he gets fired, Bogdan Bogdanovich is back tonight. I know. I Hilarious. saw it. Um, someone would like to speak. This is Frederick Smith. I have no idea how this works. So you're <laughs> our first speaker. Congratulations. Here we go. Let's see. I, I have to click a check mark. Hi, Fred. Hello. Hi, you're on. You're on. Did I mute you by accident? Um, how, did, how does this thing work? Or did you mute yourself? Yeah. Look at how great this is going. All right, What's up, Mike. Hey, what's going on? How does this? Work? I feel like I'm like on a radio. I'm like a radio host, and like someone's phone is dropping. This is so weird. Anyway, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. What's up? So what are we talking about? Oh, uh, I thought you had a question. They said you requested to speak. Okay. All right. Well, if you have a question you think of something, let me know. Anyway, this is going great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. Technology. Technology. Um but yes, yes, no. Was I was I surprised by by the firing? No, is it disappointing? Yeah. Does it suck that now the way that information is uh, is provided that some players learn about their coach being fired via Twitter? That the the general, uh, you know, the NBA public gets to kind of find out all at once, react all at once. Um, you know, it, it's a bummer. Um, 
I mean, look, right, right now we've had a couple coach firings uh, in, in the last week. Um, two bad teams. One was supposed to be bad, so I'm not exactly sure, uh, you know, in Minnesota's case, like, well, I think all things were going accordingly. They should try That's to get one pick again. That was a weird situation, that, the way that worked. You know, it, it, it seems like in both these cases, like, these were sort of, like, delayed firings that the, they were just sort of waiting for a reason to fire the coach. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, I, there were reports last year that Lloyd Pierce and Trey Young were not exactly seeing eye to eye, and there's an athletic story that dropped today about sort of the some of the players were getting annoyed with him. He was not happy with Trey Young's shot selection. Which hey, <laughs> hey Lloyd, I agree with you there. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, isn't that funny? He disagreed with the best player or superstar on the team's bad decisions, and something had to go. Uh, and so yeah, yeah. Well, all right. It looks like we have a, another real question. Yep. I think I think I got this to work. Okay, go uh, we got another question. Yeah, out of respect, I didn't want to ask right at the front of it, but I, I did want to ask your question as far as, speaking of shot selection, I'm a, I'm a huge, I, I covered the Grizzlies, I'm a huge fan, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to ask, so the Grizzlies, um, obviously, they have a preference, their strength of their offense, due to their roster, is producing in the paint, even with their guards, with Tyus Jones and John Morant being the high-usage guards that they are, getting into the paint, is their success story. However, they also are near the top of the league in assists, and we're now starting to see their offense, especially in the month of, month of February, start to spike up under Taylor Jenkins because they are starting to find success shooting the corner threes. So using what they can do in the paint to open up those high percentage looks from the corner is really starting to be something they're consistent with. My question to you, Mike, I would imagine that really is a big thing for a team that can't do a lot of pull-up shooting, but it's helping them maintain a 500 record. Is that the way that you go about keeping it sustainable for a team that cannot do a lot of pull-up shooting, use production in the paint to set up the high percentage shots? How sustainable in that is that, and how far can it take you, like, in the playoffs? You're, you're talking When you say pull-up shooting, you're talking about sort of three-point pull-up shooting. Yes. That is correct. From their production, yeah. from their production in the paint, passing out to the corner on catch-and-shoot opportunities yeah. for really open. So you're basically saying, like, absent having a Damian Lillard or a player like even that is half of a one-quarter of a Damian Lillard, um, someone who can kind of, if you go under the screen or behind the screen or drop too far, they can just sort of hit a three in your eye. That's not a player the Grizzlies have. And so this is – because, you know, it's interesting you use the phrase pull-up shooting. I think – a floater, which they shoot like a zillion, they do. is a pull-up shot. <laughs> it's just not a pull-up shot in the same way that we would think of it. Um, you know, my my suspicion is that everything what you're talking about is is more like sort of. I think that the cause and effect is the other way around with a lot of this stuff. They get to the paint and shoot a lot of floaters, and then they try to draw people in the paint to kick out because they don't have a pull-up shooter. It's not necessarily. Exactly. It's not necessarily a. A design. I mean, like they're running pick and rolls to try to get to the middle of the floor. That's like kind of the scheme. They they do it with a lot of kind of swinging the ball around and kind of these wide pin downs into dribble handoffs to try to get guys to the middle. The question is, what do you do once you get into the middle and or when you're coming around? Absent a guy who can shoot sort of off the dribble from three, you're getting you're generally getting to the middle against coverage, and they are. 
you're being given certain types of shots. The action that gets you, the shot distribution chart is more a factor of the ability of the players versus the design. The design is you get into the middle on a pick and roll coming downhill and you take for what that is, what, it, what you will. And they've got guys who are best at John Moran's got a great floater. Dylan Brooks does stuff. When he tries, he does some interesting things. Um, they've got got really good rollers, you know, and guys who can catch the ball for lobs and guys who can catch the ball inside. They don't really have, because Jackson, Jaron Jackson's out, they don't have a pick and pop guy the same way to pop for three. Um, So that's just like a design. The the scheme is you get the ball to the middle of the floor and see what happens. And, you know, as far as like the portability and sustainability of that, I think that's more so about the personnel than it is about uh, the design of the shots. You know, they eventually need someone who can score, take, shoot the ball from distance or score in an ISO or score when they go under or when someone needs to pull up from three or be able to sort of manipulate the help. I mean, John Moran's very good at manipulating it to the first pass. He's got great vision. They need some other people who can do that. Those things, I think, come with personnel. The important thing is emphasize getting the ball down the middle in those screens, getting the ball downhill, and see what happens. Uh, I think that's really where the development is. Yeah, and I think that's exactly why, you know, the self-initiating wing is, and and we hope that that could to an extent be there with Justice, though I don't really know how consistent he will be of that at this point, but perhaps getting that also in this draft uh, will be really important as well. And the last thing that I'll leave you with just from a Grizzlies perspective, as far as what you've noticed from Jaw himself, I've seen several folks say, obviously the shots regressed a bit this year. But I feel like he's got the mentality, he's got the intelligence, and he's obviously got the skill sets physically to eventually figure out that shot. He may never be a step back, 40% three-point shooter, you know, off his self-initiation on its own. But do you feel that in time, you know, say, for instance, when he's 23-24, the shot will significantly have improved? Thank you for allowing for me to come up and talk with y'all and ask the questions. It was a pleasure. All right. Thanks, Sean. Ben, what do you think about John Morant? No, I'm a huge fan. I, I love watching John play. I, in terms of the shot, I think I think one thing. Hmm, this is an interesting part of the the way the league adapts to a player. Um, but I would tell you that when you're that explosive, defenses pick a poison either way up on you, making you know forcing you into where they want you to roll into or where they want you to dribble into. Um, or, you know, we're laying back and letting someone kind of have more space to make a decision based upon the way they feel about their shot. You know, Mike, I would ask you, in Jaw's case, it feels like defenses have changed a little bit this year. But ultimately, it feels like his supporting cast is one of the things that's dictated that the most. No Jaron uh, Jackson. And then being supported by pretty inconsistent three-point shooting, which was just mentioned here. Yeah. Um, did you, do you think that it's a more of a causality of his actual shot, uh, you know, to Sean's question, or do you think it's more the personnel around him? Yeah, I don't, I think it's probably more the personnel. I also think that even though he is back playing since that ankle injury, I haven't seen the same Mm. explosiveness or decisiveness as I did before. But when he was just like, I mean, you remember watching in the preseason, it was like, holy shit, man. (laughs) Like that kid is, surging to the basket. He is making such quick, powerful movements. I haven't seen as much of that recently. I wonder if the ankle is still bothering him. As far as his jumper, I mean, he is not going to be 
he's sort of his best shot is he's got to get that sort of like Chris Paul like sort of stop while the other guy just flies by under the screen and pull up shot, right? Yeah. You know what I'm talking? You know what I'm Absolutely. Talking about? Like that's that's like kind of what he's got. He doesn't have his moving patterns are much more, you know, direct to the rim. He's got to learn that to kind of use the surge of his attacking to draw the defender underneath the screen or into the screen to try to catch him before he gets around the corner. And then he's got to be able to pull up and decelerate and shoot on balance. uh, (laughs) And right now that process takes a little while. Yeah. I think part of that is because of, because of the ankle stopping, but you know, the quicker he kind of makes that a part of his game, the better he will be as a pull threat. But I mean, ultimately look, Memphis is a nice team. I think they would very like every team. They would benefit from having another guy who's a, basically like a much more qualified Dylan Brooks. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I thought uh, I saw that someone else had a question, but I feel like I screwed something up. Um, was there somebody that raised their hand? I feel like I got like a speaker request and I got thrown off. Anyway, yeah. until then, Ben, we were talking about the Hawks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we were talking about the Hawks and, and the firing yesterday. Um, yeah, look, the Hawks, are, there's a victim of, of your own expectations or your ownership's expectations aspect here, for sure. I mean, there's no way to get around that. They were one of the busiest teams in one of the shortest off-seasons, so that put quite the, the microscope on, on the Hawks. And then things didn't gel. Surprise, surprise. Um, number of injuries mixed with almost no training camp and almost no time to practice in-season. And that with a young, you know, I'll I'll use the term superstar, but like a young superstar whose skill set has a lot of volatility, it must have been a really hard coaching situation. I don't know if Nate McMillan's going to do much better other than the players now have more onus on them to to put up or shut up. It's going to help that Bogdanovich is coming back. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised Pierce was fired. Um, I feel bad. I always kind of thought he was a really good assistant under Brett Brown and, and that this was going to be the right opportunity to go to a place where he would have time to learn how to be a, a good head coach without having those expectations as a burden. And this off season just kind of flipped it. So yeah. Yeah. it's like suddenly, Oh, Hey, you have expectations. <laughs> yeah, It's yeah. like, I mean, he's the job he has now is not the job that he signed up for. That's um, right. That's it, right. it sort of does make you, I mean, and, and there's good, I mean, we have to talk a little bit about the racial element here with like, mm-hmm. You know, his um, he was not given sort of a chance to grow into the job into the same level of time that, well, Brett Brown was. <laughs> like, there are a lot of parallels there. Like, suddenly he's now got, like, a totally different job, and Brett Brown lasted a long time. Um, so I think there's there's obviously something to it. But, I mean, the, the reality is we just don't know how good a coach he is. We just don't know anything about it. Like, yep. uh, Yeah, the Brett Brown parallels are very real. Yeah, except one is the the white one stayed for longer, I guess, to, to, yeah. to make it really real, put a real yeah. level on it. Um, <laughs> I wrote a piece about Atlanta before Joel and Bean about how their offense really frustrated me because I felt like, I mean, since writing that piece, basically the idea was they don't ever move. They don't move in any unscripted way. There's no flow. They basically run this. It seems way too simple. 
um, nobody really makes instinctual cuts. And so it almost doesn't matter what you're running if you're not sort of capitalizing on the advantages you're gaining mm-hmm. and trying to put yourself in position to make plays. And you're going to have an offense that's not very egalitarian. Since then, I've watched Trey Young a lot and me before then. Um, and it's just amazing how many zero pass possessions they have. Yeah. And I just, I just wonder, like, and I know. It's funny reading that. Did you read that athletic article? Uh, no, I haven't. I didn't. Let me see if I can go find a link to it. I think it was by Chris Kirshner and a bunch of other folks at the athletic <laughs> national team. Well, I go find it. Um, well, you're saying that. So the reporting was that Lloyd Pierce didn't like straight on shot selection, but a lot of the other Hawks didn't like how little the offense allowed them to move without the ball. Um, and so then my question here is like, so whose fault is that? Is right. that Roy Pearson? Is that ultimately a Trey Young thing? Well, that, like we're about yeah. to find out, I guess. I was going to say we will find out, and I also think it's interesting that you know Trey Young is Trey Young is, a, is is like a really good example of when when the hype and and the ability that the the eye test ability are very real, like a, a casual fan can be very attracted to the way that Trey Young plays. And diehard fans who want more from what they see uh, can also qualify into like watching Trey Young very closely and being enamored with him. The, the question of, is a point guard supposed to make the other four players on the court better versions of themselves, and does Trey Young do that, is, is sort of outstanding here. And to your point, uh, a no-pass possession ending in a 26-foot shot off the dribble. Now, it might be the right possession sometimes, but is that is that effective? Is that an effective offensive flow? Is that an effective way to get your to keep your coach's job um, and make your other players around you better? I'm, I'm not 100% sure. I've, I've watched a number of games this year where I was like, wow, the Hawks could put up 140 points a game if they wanted to, and there were quite literally a game or two where they did that. Um, but... 140 points is, is, is not, it's not good if that's being, if that's coming about because you are sacrificing every other aspect uh, of offensive basketball or defensive basketball, I should say. Um, I'm, not, I'm not also hundred percent sold on uh, that Nate McMillan's going to be the right guy for this. I feel like, wasn't he just let go in Indiana for not necessarily adapting to the, to the roster around him? Yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly. I mean, the Indiana situation was complex, but it seemed like one of the things that I think was very different between him and Nate Bjorken, who, by the way, is now three games under 500. But we'll talk yeah, and they looked they looked they looked terrible last night. I mean, I know they're, they're missing players and and whatnot, but the Sixers really put them in a bag last night. They look a little bit like they're sort of they don't get exact he's almost on a higher level what they want to do versus what they can do and at the beginning of the season it felt like they came out and they really were executing what he wanted them to do and it's just they don't have the reps to sustain it and i feel like that you know i, I think some bonus production has really gone down since the season anyway mm-hmm. um but i think the, the, the criticism against mcmillan was mostly that uh, to the degree that it existed was like their their offense was fairly predictable mm-hmm. um there was you ran the play and there wasn't a lot of sort of spontaneity outside of it. Seems like that's that's exactly what they need. <laughs> um, yes. But the, the thing that's interesting, we we've got a comment kind of saying 
Young needs to play more like Steph. And I think I think everybody needs to play more like Steph. Steph's a great player. I think it's hard. The thing that like gets me though, <laughs> and the thing that I feel like from outside is like such an easy bridge to this, is that if Trayon would pass the ball early, he could get it back on the move, and life would be a lot easier for him, and other people would be involved. <laughs> Seems like there's a bridge there. You know, the whole give it up to get it back thing. So that you're not literally going against, like, kind of set pick and roll every time where you have to draw two and make the spectacular passer shot. Seems to me like that would help everybody. And yet the message never went through with Lloyd Pierce, and we'll see if it goes through with Nate McMillan. Like, I don't really know why it hasn't necessarily been framed as, like, hey, Trey, you pass the ball to a wing player, you run through, you run a little bit off ball. I mean, shit, watch Isaiah Thomas from that Celtics year where he was MVP. I mean, this was this was the foundation of success this year, the ability to, that year, the ability to give the ball up to get it back on the move, attacking, using his speed. Man, Trayon would just kill it then instead of have, putting up these huge numbers and, I don't know, everybody would be happier. I mean, I know that the offense is good with Trayon, but damn, I feel like it could be so much better. I don't understand why the point here to Trey Young is not. Maybe it was, and it just never resonated. But, like, you pass, you give the ball up, you can get it back, and you'll make your life easier. Seems like that's the, the way to sort of thread the needle here. And it seems very simple to thread, and yet it hasn't been threaded. And I, I don't know if that's Trey Young or maybe that, that, that it was the wrong coach. Or maybe it's one of those things where he just doesn't get it for a couple of years until he goes through some failed experiences and then it sort of clicks for him the way the way it does did for Embiid. You yeah. know I feel like it, it like yes, if he gave the ball up, if he was more willing to pass early, we've talked about it, Trayon would get more hockey assists and make a bigger impact. There's there's <laughs> no question about that. Um and that's what's frustrating. But it seems to me like it could be it would just be easier for him too. It seems like it, this should align with his goals of scoring and yet it doesn't and I wonder why yeah 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 I mean when you have the amount of gravity that he should be creating you're right yeah the hockey assist I don't I see we have some comments here too that are along that line but um yeah, yeah. it's 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 a lot of things for the for the Hawks. Yeah. I think you can you can always fire one manager much easier than you can fire an entire offseason of free agency brought in as well as right. that you've picked in the top 10. So like yeah. uh, you know, there's 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 That's definitely a, a blueprint for change for McMillan. It turns out if you just decide one day, you know what? I I am just moving the goalposts of my expectations I for no reason at all other than a Mancy it doesn't quite come together as easily as you think. Weird how that life works like that. Um, Noah says, and I agree that there's like a lack of trust and, you know, I think that permeates throughout the roster. Um, And yeah, I think that that's true. It's hard to know how to bridge that trust, but see, that's also the thing that like, for all that we say about whether this was right or wrong to fire Lloyd Pierce or whether he was set up to fail or, these are the sorts of things where, like, that's what a coach does. But yet mm. we have no idea. Like, he fosters trust. He builds these sorts of systems. You know, that's really what his job is. But we have no way of knowing if he's doing the job unless the whole thing works. And then we have no way of knowing is it his fault that the job is. And it's just too complicated for that. Um, but that, yeah, I think there's, an, uh, there's a lack of trust, a lack of familiarity. And so you get just – 
they're just standing around for each other. But you also see some teams that have a lot of new players who have that, you know, and so mm-hmm. I don't think it's just a Hawks thing. Um, yeah. What else, what else do you want to talk about? Anything else interesting to you? Uh, let's see. What else? What else? Um, yeah, I mean, look, you were right about Utah before the season. If you want to gloat a little bit about them, by all means. I mean, they look pretty good. They're coming in. I'm very excited for the uh, – I'm assuming that Joel will not have – uh, back spasms or pain before the game. Uh, I think it's Thursday uh, versus yeah. Wednesday or Thursday, whatever it is, versus uh, the Jazz. But yeah, I'm excited to see the Sixers and Jazz play at full strength. Um, I think that would be I was, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I was very excited for it the first time. And so I was a little yeah. Well, that's the thing happen. about watching the Sixers. Never assume you're going to get to watch the entire team play. And I, I said full strength. I don't even know if Tobias Harris is playing, and, and they do miss him. Yeah, uh, they miss him, sure miss him a lot last night. <laughs> but yeah. I think that was like the single worst thing that could have happened to the Tobias Harris All Star push was last night's game. Um, <laughs> Josh Josh Loby wants to speak. Uh, Josh, what's up? Hey guys, how's it going? Good, good. Um, so I'm I'm a Bulls fan. I got to a first row seat to watch the uh, Nikola Jokic show last night. <laughs> you know, basically put down I think 80 percent or something of their points in the fourth quarter and just. Just killed us. So there's been this kind of uh, discourse on Bulls Twitter the last 24 hours about, you know, whether or not it's Wendell Carter's fault and, you know, is there anybody who can defend Jokic? So I guess my question more generally is if you were, if you're tasked with, you know, the best scheme to defend him, you know, I'm curious to see what, what you come up with. I mean, I, I keep coming back to the idea of in, the, in a regular season game where you're not going to help as aggressively as you might in the playoffs. There's just not a great way to stop him. And, and you just kind of have to hold on and we'll, and we'll see, you know, I, teams will just have to help more aggressively, you know, in the playoffs and, and make other guys make threes. But I'd be curious to see what you guys think about how, how if you were to put a scheme in place, what would it be to defend him the best way you could? <laughs> Thanks for the question. Yeah, I'm. Uh, he is very scheme proof. <laughs> it's hard. Did, did you watch that game, Ben? Uh, I, I just watched the ten minute uh, the highlight reel package from. Yeah, right. I watched that game. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know, man. <laughs> he's a he's a tough guy to stop because the thing is, is right. Like he can play on the perimeter. There's not much you can do to sort of stop the two man stuff with. Uh, Murray and Jokic. I think um, Nikai's Duncan, I think our friend had a good piece about how sort of when it's crunch time, Denver sort of does a really good job of kind of basically splitting the floor in two and just giving those two just all this room on one side to just do whatever they need to do to get open. And they're just so flexible. So that's that's really tough. But the problem is it I think you, you can't play him straight up in the post. It's sort of what Wendell Carter tried to do. I, I thought he did okay. You know, mostly. I, I, I thought he did fine. It's just he walks you down and he takes up so much space and it's really hard. But then if you double team him, which they did at the end of that game, um, boy, talk about somebody who can read the third guy in a double team. He does. Um, I keep hearing this from, like, commentators. And I wonder if it's like – it feels to me like it's like, man, they, there's no way any team can really commit to this. Like, this is just – these commentators living in fantasy land, but they often say, I think maybe Stacey King might've mentioned it last night. It's like, well, pressured Jokic 94 feet with your center. Um, I think I, I want to say Stacey King mentioned that last night. I know the wizards commentators have mentioned it. 
Um, Josh, does that sound familiar? Were you watching the Bulls broadcast? It does, yeah, he was, he was talking about that when he was, or and he was saying just jump up on screens and be aggressive. I don't know who's got the legs for that to do that. For, you know, thing. They they tend not to be um, six foot eleven, two hundred and fifty pound people. Um, and if they are, they probably are Thaddeus Young, and that obviously didn't work out. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, like in a playoff setting, like maybe what you do is you just try to send your like kind of biggest wing, like, you know, your Lou Dordish type of player, your, uh, if they play Portland, maybe your Bob Covington, your sort of just the kind of like big wing and just sort of, I don't know. I mean, he's going to pick a lot of fouls though. That's the problem because Jokic will bait him into so many fouls, but like maybe you play him with a smaller guy with a low center of gravity and make him shoot over the top of you. Um, you know, Rob William, William Rob Williams played much better than Tice or Thompson back when the Seas played them less. I did not see that game, so I'd have to be curious. William, maybe you can enlighten us in the chat or on what exactly was Rob Williams doing. Um, I don't think I saw that game, but uh, the problem is, see, the problem with playing with a little guy with like a spindly, lengthy guy, even a big, is he's just going to back the dude in and mm-hmm. just chisel, 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 force his way in for a, a layup. Um, so I don't know if that totally works. Uh, Joel says when Bogdanovich was guarding the Utah, tried that and got cooked. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a, unfortunately the jazz, the Bogdan Bogdanovich isn't exactly the, the profile of, uh, of wing that would be ideal against that Jokic side. Not a lot of guys have that. Um, you might, I mean, if I remember in that Utah series in the playoffs, you, Gobert mostly single covered him, right? There was a lot of dropping and trying to make him shoot threes, right, Ben? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's what I remember. But again, like I feel like Jokic's game is it's it's a it's an more evolved version this year than even it was last year. And I know even saying last year feels dumb because that was like uh, five months, four months ago. Um, but no, I mean, hit, yes, a guy like Gobert is a singular answer. Now, if you're the other 29 team or 28 teams, um, what what's the solution? When did they play the Lakers with AD next? I mean, yeah. it seems like every answer I come up with is like, yeah, whatever, do what Anthony Davis does. But there's only one Anthony Davis. Um, yeah. Also, I mean, to your point, like, Jokic now is, is shooting – uh, what's his, was he shooting 41% from three this year? So, and he's taking much more sort of those spot up, uh, pick and pop threes that Utah was kind of willing to live with him taking. So you can't really do that now. I don't think the Bulls did anything wrong, really. I just think he's tough and you need the right personnel. And I thought they did okay for most of the game. And then I, you know, I just, he, he he's just too tough in crunch time. And it's, uh, it's hard to see what you do. I mean, you kind of, your other thing you could do is just sort of do what Dallas used to do with Steve Nash. And it's like, okay, Nick, if you want to score 65 points, but you get like no assist, like <laughs> shut off the other guys, you know, you single cover him, but I mean, he's going to score every time. He's really good. Do you think, I mean, I know you, you, you always, you're, you're going to favor Embiid over Jokic, right? <laughs> In the case. Oh man. I mean, yeah, right. I, yeah, you know me, Mike, I am going to favor him. And I don't even think that's necessarily, 
I don't, I don't, it's hard to, to split hairs right now. They're, they're very singular in how good they both are at playing a position in a very different way, but both as being quote unquote, traditionally sized big men. Um, yeah, I would favor him, but I, I look at the Western conference standings and, and there's a world where the nuggets can probably make it up, you know, as high as the fourth seed, um, Probably not going to crack that Clippers, Lakers, Jazz top three. Be difficult to catch the Suns on all, in all likelihood. How many games back with Phoenix are there right now? Uh, th- three and a half. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how much of the season is left again? Like we have, where we're like halfway done. I can't even tell where we're at. It's yeah. It's we're, some teams have played thirty-five games already. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I would favor Embiid too, although I admit that Embiid is a player where you sort of have as great. He's a obviously a much better. I think he's a better scorer and mm-hmm. close the gap and a better defensive player, but it's close the gap on the passing, but it's not there yet. But I, I, I recognize that you sort of have to tailor your team for Embiid a little more than Jokic. But yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, Brad makes an interesting point. When I don't think I saw this game either. Maybe I did. When the Raptors played Denver, um, Ojanobi guarded Jokic and had like seven steals. Well, Toronto was basically what, like basically pre-double teaming. That's kind of what they do. They just, they sort of flood. You just saw Toronto play Embiid recently. Didn't Embiid have a couple rough games against Toronto? Uh, He did. He did. Um, The first game in particular was, uh, was more rough, if you will. But I mean, part of that's the big bodies. And then the other part is, is that, Toronto plays such a uh, it's such a helter skelter like it's it's never the same double team they change right. their scheme constantly I mean literally possession over possession um, yeah and then they'll go through five ten minute spurts where they are putting a, you know a Baines a traditional big to just body Joel so he's getting more unique looks against the Raptors and any other team that we played and when you put when this season so far and when you when he matches up with like the other traditional bigs like Miles Turner, for example, who's a, a great defensive center, it's it's nothing. It's it's a piece of cake, right? Like it's yeah. Joel's gonna get where he wants and, and and almost you're at a deficit because you think you can guard him with one player when the reality is it's it's a schematic way uh, that you're gonna have to try to stop him, not by just a single matchup. Um Toronto also has like a uniquely built like long athletic team. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, they, they just they really mix things up well. Nurse is pretty smart about everything he does defensively against the Sixers. And a lot of a lot of times um, Gasol was getting credit over the last couple of years. And I think I think people realize pretty quickly that the scheme, um, you know, outweighed all of that. Yeah, I think I think Mark made a bigger difference on offense than defense. For yeah, sure. that's for um, sure. yeah I mean, watching Chris Boucher, he's basically just sort of like a walking. Uh, what am I thinking of? He's basically like. He's like the wacky weighted, like the wacky weighted inflatable arm yeah. man, just sort of walking around. I mean, dude, he shoots. Shots. Of course, he's, he shoots. His form is—he's a slightly smaller. Do you remember how Manute Bowl used to? Yes. Play? Oh my God, that—that's—that's that's who I was just thinking. That—that's who it is. Yes. That like sort of little, like sort of sling and bent elbow shooting. Yep. Yep. Oh exactly. man, yo, look up Manute Bowl on. Shooting plays on YouTube. Yeah, that is a that is, that is exactly who he looks like. Yep, and I remember um, Manupol did have one incredible three point shooting game against the Phoenix Suns. I want to say in like nineteen ninety 
three or four or something. Charles had just been traded to the Suns and Manute had, and it was one of those extremely non-competitive Sixers teams versus a very, very good Phoenix team. And I think they may have lost by like 30, but Manute had like five or six threes in that game. And it's just this completely ridiculous slingshot shot. Oh, here we go. I found a highlight video. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I got texted myself because I found it on my computer. Uh, Manu Paul, <laughs> six threes versus the Suns. There you go. That's the one. Glad my brain's oh, okay. I got to go, go find this video. Um, a little bit. But, uh, while, we we have, while I do that, Tyrone asked about the Jazz yeah. being a finals contender. I don't want to spoil too much about – I've been developing this sort of Jazz piece <laughs> for the newsletter over like a month that I just can't – it just gets too – the idea becomes way too big for me to kind of wrangle, and I need to wrangle it eventually. Um, mm. About the Jazz, I mean, I think, yeah, obviously they're a finals contender. Um, I just posted the video of a new poll, and you'll see exactly what Ben means. Um, I I think part – well, one of the things that's interesting – like, I find the conversation of, like, are they a contender? Can they win the playoffs to be, like, kind of a little reductive? And sort of, I think I've said this on podcasts before, but it's like, were the Heat a real contender last year? Like, they didn't play like it until the playoffs when they were two wins away. Were the Nuggets more of a real contender than the Clippers? I feel like we sort of reinvent the rules based after the fact. But ultimately, what we're really saying, right, is do they, they don't have, like, a top five superstar. So are they, can they really win the title? It's essentially how it what the conversation reduces to right yeah i think it's yeah it's it is again i mean i, I we had this conversation with uh, uh with anthony and harrison of uh you know the lakers guys on our pod for the preview um you know unlimited upside you know whatever how many months ago that was in october and anthony was very re- you know reductionist but was like the two best players play on the lakers so they can have the next five and it's exactly it's in the awesome. finals, right? Yeah, in the finals. yeah. And so it's like, is that to be applied to the Jazz when they eventually play the Lakers or the Clippers or, um, uh, you know, I, I would say there's a team in the East right now, but I don't really know who the best team in the East is. Uh, Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, it's you know, in terms of this superstar comparison we're making, yes, um, it's Brooklyn. Um, but How is it uh, not Brooklyn? I don't understand. Are you still clinging to Philly? No, I mean, I want to see it play out. Like, uh, let, let me, yeah, let me. Let me see how it plays out. Let, let I guess Milwaukee is worth considering because they most of their losses have come without Drew Holiday. All right, so yeah. so let me let me hit you with something to really think about then, which everybody yeah. thinks about then. What if I told you that the Jazz actually did have a top five player? It's just not a player who looks like. Let me let me put it this way. Jordan I'm not Clark. saying I necessarily believe this. I'm just sort of just for food for thought. Mm. What is what is a superstar today? Yeah. Generally, we're talking about one type of play, right? The the guy who has the ball in his hands, who can do anything with the ball in his hands, mm-hmm. right? The, basically, the, the tallest perimeter player who can do the most things is the biggest superstar. That's basically what a superstar is now. That's what we think of it. If you are unable to do – the person who is unable to do as many things with the ball in their hands as someone else – is less of a superstar. And so our best players in the league are what LeBron, whenever he is locked in. <laughs> yeah. You know, I guess Durant, um, Kawhi, uh, now Jokic, I guess. Basically, like you are, you are, your superstardom is evaluated based on what you do when you have the ball. 
right? Yeah, yeah. That's essentially what it comes down to. And so then the issue with the Jazz is that their their best player is not the guy who's best when they have with the ball in his hands. It's when the other team has the ball. It's not even just when the other team has the ball. I mean, basically, like in the playoffs, the theory goes in these playoffs, defenses know what you're doing off the ball. So you need someone to kind of basically create the first breakdown and then exploit it. Right. And generally in the playoffs, you're less likely. The thought is that you do that by having a guy on the ball who can make a play one-on-one in a pick and roll, whatever, targeting the weak guy. Basically it's it's the guy with the ball who is the difference. If he can make a play with the ball, to create that advantage, that makes him the most most superstar team, right? Sure, sure. And Miami was not a team with a superstar because although Jimmy Bowler can do that for a couple games, that's not really the the beauty of him. Utah doesn't have that player. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people look at that and say, well, that's where it ends, stops and ends. Like, they don't have that player that can't be – they can't be a title game because that's what a superstar is at the highest levels. So then my question, what I think is really interesting about what they're doing is that they have a guy who does everything on both ends that in the regular season at least, and I think I think increasingly will be true in the playoffs, but we'll see, does everything that the guy with the ball does in creating those advantages that other people exploit or you exploit to sort of basically tilt your defense. He just happens to be a guy who does it, who does it without the ball. And that's where you go there. Yep. Yeah. I, I think that's a really interesting way to look at this. The offensive side of the game always gets more attention. Um, it is more visceral to see a ball go through the net than the position of the center in help defense that have made it, so that the 22nd <laughs> shot clock violation occurred. Yeah. Um, you know, and this is all part of the discourse right now between uh, some friends of the pod and, and other folks about, uh, you know, Rudy Gobert and, and Ben Simmons candidacies for the <laughs> player of the year. You know, Ben doesn't challenge as many shots at the rim, and th- that's the most direct way to affect the game. I think I mean, you and many smart folks can can tell you that, that yeah. Gobert does. Lots I mean, I stuff. think I don't think there's a contest. I think he's a defense. Rudy Gobert is a defensive player of the year. It's no disrespect to Ben Simmons. It's just because the other thing too is it's not even just the shots he can test. Like I would write, I wrote about this a little bit in the finals with Anthony Davis, and I think early in the season I made this bold claim that I thought Anthony Davis is the best player in the game. He has obviously not played like it because he's hurt. But the logic is that basically it's like the the the, mil- the tons and tons of plays that you don't make because of him that you can't really measure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I I, I totally understand yeah. that. I think Gobert is um, a tremendous defensive player, and uh, it speaks for itself, the success that he's anchored on the defense of the Jazz. Now that they've got a, a better – what I would tell you is that it's the Jordan Clarksons of the world and you know Ingles off the bench and that they are – they're supplementing their defensive prowess with offensive ability and spacing and a healthy Connolly and all, all the things that – Well, what do you think is setting all that up? No, I understand giving you giving a lot of credit to 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 Gobert for sure, and I'm not saying he's not the defensive player of the year. I I am biased. I watch Simmons play every game, and I've I've watched him 
be very dominant defensively this year um, against, you know, Damian Lillard and Luka Doncic and as well as score 42 points directly, essentially directly on Rudy Gobert himself. And so, you know, that is what it is. I have to, I, I don't protest that. I watched that game. Early on, the first six minutes, he scored a bunch on him. The rest yes. of the game was mostly on Derek Favors. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of Derek Favors buckets for sure. It wasn't a lot of. It, Gobert looked a little stunned that he wasn't going against Embiid for the beginning, and then he adjusted. Yeah. It. Simmons was much less effective against him and did most of his whatever. Um, I guess and, my point, my larger point with all of this is that it's not for most teams it's very we are trained to think that the guy who has the ball is the guy creating or negating a play and i think that's actually especially true as the game has changed Mm -hmm. the guy even if they don't get the stats for it the guy who has the ball is the guy who makes it like easier for everybody else and you're sort of seeing this uh general trend towards let's give the ball to our best player to let them do more. And I think Seth partner had a great piece today on the athletic about just how the usage split between five players and an average lineup is more polarized now than it was 10 years ago. Basically Mm -hmm. to say the what there is one, there's generally now one guy ending more possessions. So it's very hard to look at what Utah is doing and say, this is, something that will work because it just looks so different. But I would posit that they may be redefining what it means to be a shot creator. Now I'm not talking about it from like a screen assist. Yes. That like forget assists in general. Mm-hmm. I think, I think it's worth thinking about whether for Utah, the cause and effect of who creates the advantage and who uh, exploits the advantage it's inverted with the way they play. Mm-hmm. And I think that's um, Gobert. Traditionally, that play, type of player is an advantage exploiter because he doesn't have the ball. But with the way they play, and certainly on defense, he's the guy who's actually doing the creation that the guy, the guards are just so good at capitalizing on those little edges. The basically the advantage disadvantage creation phase of the basketball possession is totally inverted with the Jazz, and so I think, and I think you know, look, that was always the case, but I think Gobert's become better at it. I think he's gotten better at switching out onto the perimeter. I think I, I remember watching a Clippers game against him recently and thinking, well, what if he guarded Kawhi? That would be kind of interesting. Hmm. You know, I think he can take like sort of what he does at the rim and take it out and potentially and see how that. Um, goes, but I think it's I think the Jazz are interesting intellectually to me because their best player, the guy who creates all their advantages, is a guy who doesn't look like an advantage creator in any other context. And I mean, to me, like you talk about Clarkson, you talk about the Bengals, you talk about Conley. Who's the one dude that plays with all of them that makes their life easier? Yeah, that's fair. I get it, Rudy Gobert. You know, it's just they play in a way that where usually it's like the guy who has the ball is the, the fulcrum and the guy they, that they pass to are the sort of the disposable or the exploiters or sort of the role players or whatever you want to call it, the finishers. Utah, just the way they play, they completely invert that concept. Mm-hmm. The guys with the ball are the finishers. And I'm here, a- 
I'm, I'm very like curious. Game. Mike, who do you think is the worst matchup for Utah? Say they get the one seed. Okay. Lakers. Uh, let me let me just that, that would in theory be the Western Conference uh, Finals. What, what's the worst matchup for them in round one? Where and this is ultimately where every Jazz fan's brain goes because the last thing I think a team that's been punching close to being a contender without quite necessarily being one, the last thing you want is to get that one seed and then just get beaten the first right. round. Uh, who, who's the dip, most difficult matchup? Because it's this is going to be one of the best parts about the playoffs this year is the playing game in the West is going to be between, you know, between multiple yeah. teams that are really good, you know, that are, that are yeah. that be hosting a, a, a series in the East. Why who did the they just lose to last night? Uh, who did the Jazz lose to last night? New Orleans. New Orleans. Yeah, true. Zion. Talk about a, an interesting matchup, man. Watching Zion go full head of steam into Gobert. Uh, he's so ridiculous. Um, yeah. I, think I was texting you during the game, but like watching him, make these in-season leaps uh and i say leaping being a pun i suppose here but like he's really become a, a pretty unstoppable monster um and is doing so by saying i'm gonna my chest is gonna go um higher than your chest and i'm bigger than you <laughs> it's, it's it, not it, even higher it's like i mean this it, is he's like yeah. he's got this ability to like where he I have, like, this is, again, I'm not spoiling a thing I'm working on right now, but it's, like, it's more about a different player. But Zion Williamson jumps sideways better than anybody at that size and in that yeah. little space I've ever seen. Like, he just sort of, he glances off you. It's crazy. Um, I, I'm guessing they don't want to see Denver. Back to the Jazz. I, I wouldn't, if I yeah. were Denver, I wouldn't want to see Denver again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly right. Uh, and it, wouldn't it be something if the defensive player of the year and the MVP were playing in the first round? That would be great. I would, uh, yeah, at, at that pivotal matchup. And then we get Jamal Murray in the playoffs again. And, and uh, it's just Jamal yeah. Murray versus Mitchell again. Yeah, all the good stuff. That would, what be, a great that would be fun. That would be. Um, what but I'm also, I'm also totally interested in, uh, in seeing, you know, Luca try to punch up um, or the Spurs dropping into that spot and having Popovich try to figure out how to beat, uh, how to beat the Jazz. There's, there's, there's a lot of uh, interesting matchups that you can make just given how competitive the West yeah. yeah, I think they would be interesting coaching series. I just personalize. I feel like what you need is, you know, and Denver may not have this, but like, just again, if, if your best player is like so good at sort of creating those little creases and you're really good at exploiting those little creases off the ball on the ball, you need a team. You, if you play a team that closes space really well in defense, you're, <laughs> that's going to be a trouble. trouble to Mm-hmm. And that's the Lakers. Yeah, if Davis is healthy. Yeah, um, I mean, even the Clippers. Like, I guess it depends who they play, but I, I feel like the. I mean, this is a whole separate conversation. But the Clippers sure look a lot like the last year's Clippers recently, but that's a whole other thing. Um, okay, we've we've yeah. done this for an hour. Do you want to? I, I know good. there were a couple questions we got before the show. Like I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hop. Um, I know that uh, our good friend Dan Rubenstein of uh, Solid Verbal Podcast uh, fame and former SB Nation coworker of ours asked us if we combined our athletic uh, injuries we've had in our life. Which 1998 NBA player would we be? Um, hmm. what, uh, what's your game like? I've never actually seen you play. Yeah, I was a big point guard. Uh, and by big, I mean I'm six foot three and uh, and played. You know. 
high school and AAU basketball in Philadelphia. So I, I, I had a back to the basket game as a six foot three point guard. Okay. So you're um, like a Sean Livingston. No, yeah. Sean Livingston would be ideal. I was more of a Mark Jackson. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, Mark Jackson might be a really good answer to this question because I mean, old Mark Jackson just sort of backing down, backing down, backing down too unable to sort of turn too immobile, <laughs> just waiting for that double team. If he did it today, he'd be getting like a zillion five-second back yeah. violations. That seems like a great answer to that question. Yeah. He was pretty old in 98. Uh, he was. He was. He was. Yeah. Uh, there's a good question I know I got, which I need to think about a little bit more, um, which was, why do I, why can't I find it? Um, oh, from Brad Hetzel. The most underrated or under-discussed niche skill of a specific top 15 player in the league. Jokic is rebounding Steph's touch. Um, well, I don't know. I, I will say this, though. Rebounding is not the skill. Rebounding is the output. <laughs> I think we, we too often, and this is a problem of equating this, the skill is the athletic or movement pattern. The basketball thing that it results in is not the skill, in my opinion. I know people use them interchangeably, but I think it, it leads to misevaluation. So... Like, my answer would be something more along the lines of, like, Luka, not, not, this isn't my answer, but, like, Luka Doncic's, like, sort of, I've written about the last step, the, the, like, kind of, that's a skill. Mm -hmm. Not Luka Doncic's finishing billions in, like, floater range. That's an output. Anyway. um, Yep. Do I have any thoughts on Sam Vecini's young player rankings? I, I, I have to admit I have not seen them. Anyway, anyway Ben, feel free yes. to speak. Goodbye. Uh, Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to this. Mike, keep it up. Thank you. Uh, do I have any thoughts on Sam Vecini's young player rankings? I'd like Sam. I have not seen – What is, I have to Google this. I have to admit I haven't actually seen this yet. Uh, da, 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 da. I know he does it every year. Um, and I know he's a prospect right? because I just haven't gotten around to reading it yet. Uh, what is the top 10? Ambassini cross. Um, is this, or this is only NBA prospects, right? So it doesn't include guys in college. Let's see. Uh, I admit again, sorry, I'm skimming this. So I, I, I don't actually, let's see. Oh man, I'm still only on 47, man. I got a long way to go. Uh, the top 10 was what? Um, if someone wants to, God, now I'm back on the comment section. Uh, oh, this is, wait, hold up. Who is the top 10? Why? I, I guess the fact that I'm like kind of Googling this, um, suggests that I haven't read this so much. I guess the real question, the real question is what, like, is, um, where's Luca? Where's LaMelo? Where's Zion? Those are sort of the, um, like who was number one? I guess I have to look this up. Oh, great podcast guys. Thanks. This is really a, Jason Tatum was number two. Ooh, that's a little high. I think so. Tatum goes ahead of Zion. Luca is number one. Um, Bam out of bio is number four. That's an interesting one. Um, I like Bam out of bio. I don't know four. 
Shagels Alexander is going number six. Uh, that's something I like. I think he's really underrated. I Jason Tatum is tough to evaluate. I, is because he, I think he's clearly not. This, he's been affected by his COVID diagnosis. You know, he, he, um, he, his game looks really pretty. I think it, it is quite good, but he's still he's going back to sort of having those issues finishing around the basket. I think if you're going to say that Tatum is ahead of Zion, you have to really believe that sort of the archetypal, uh, tall, big wing who can get a shot whenever he's wants with the ball is just this, the designation is so much more valuable than the player. And I, that's not something I've generally agreed with, but I can understand where it comes from. Um, so that I think is really where, I mean, like, to me, the question is like, I mean, where's Jalen Brown on this this list? Um, is he not a prospect? Let's see, I would say that Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum belong in much closer together, but that's just me. Um, but I know that there are bigger Tatum fans than I. Uh, Jalen Brown was too old, so I guess Tatum could fit into any team while Zion you have to build around. So that's an interesting concept. That's a that's another way of saying, I guess, like sort of the most important type of player in the game is the tall shot creating wing guy, what they can do with the ball. And that player can fit versus Zion who doesn't necessarily have that in the same way in terms of the shot, at least But I would argue, I mean, what's interesting, that may be true. Like kind of, I think it's better to have a guy who's good at everything than good at some things, but I, I would, question whether Tatum is great at everything because I mean you look at some of the complaints that have been lodged against the Celtics like I know there was some player and honestly said this like they that is passing the passing skill of Brown and and Tatum like they are good passers but not good at getting other teammates involved in the same way they're not great supernatural passers so to me obviously like his passing is not as much of a weakness as Zion's jump shot right now but that it is a weakness. So why is that not a thing that you have to somewhat build around by adding more playmaking in other positions? You know, it's it's less obvious than dude can't shoot, so the lane is wide open. Um, and we guess we'll see. I mean, no Zion has done a lot of stuff with the ball recently to make you think that it's not ball handling that's necessarily a thing. But I mean, just because one weakness is slightly less obvious, is that definitely something that and you have to build around everybody, I guess is what I'm saying. So I just think that um, you shouldn't necessarily take the archetypal kind of construct of a player too far. You know, just because Zion doesn't fit what, what looks like the the type of player that you think needs to win now doesn't necessarily mean that makes him a worse prospect. Um Donovan Mitchell at number five. Uh, boy, what an interesting player Donovan Mitchell is. Um, I, I'm i surprised he's still considered a prospect. I don't know what the rules of this were. Um, I think Mitchell's having a better season than his advanced numbers suggest. I think a lot of his plus-minus numbers are due to playing a lot more with favors versus Gobert. I think that's um, something that they're, they're sort of manipulating lineups so that like the fact that he can tread water Rules are if you're on your first contract. Is Mitch, I thought Mitchell signed a, an extension. Maybe he didn't. Um, oh, I guess he isn't technically on it. Um, 
So I think his like plus. I mean, the fact that he it's a similar thing that happens with Anthony Davis and LeBron on the Lakers. You know, LeBron takes that early rest and then comes back in with the second unit against other second units. So he's sort of almost padding his plus minus numbers a little bit. Whereas Davis now has to go against more starters. And the fact that he can tread water in that is almost as valuable as sort of the advantage you gain. It's like if any of you guys play high school tennis, it's like sort of stacking your ladder um, as a tactic that high school people used, um, where you sort of not necessarily play your seven best players one through seven. You would sort of shift it around so you could kind of because the goal was to win more games. So you'd sort of shift your tactics around so that maybe you put someone who's better lower on the ladder because they have more better chance of winning their matchup. It's kind of like that. Um, I, w- I mean, I like I like Shea aesthetically better than Mitchell. I think Mitchell still has moments where he forces a little bit too much, but I also think – I mean, I, I, I'll put it this way. I don't think I would I would have put Mitchell at five, but I don't think it's like that wild a thought. I mean, it's what? Mitchell, Young, Shea, uh, and John, Darren Fox are all in the top ten shuffle those players around i think you could you could put them anywhere and i would be okay with it um all right what makes you so high on shay uh i think it's a lot of it is i mean i i think we've written about no i think you have written about his movement patterns and his ability to kind of get to places i think he's developed that step back jumper um the list itself may have been written before Point Zion took full flight. Yes, that's probably true. Um, yeah. As far as Shea, yeah, he's got that step-back jumper now, which I think is really nice. I think he – I mean, I just think it's – right now he's playing on a team that has just, like, nobody else that can do anything on offense, really. And he's still able to take his guy one-on-one in ISO – situations and sort of step through them in different and unique ways. And again, he's developing as a shooter uh, and as a step back shooter, but he still has got enough passing ability where you could sort of scale his role back a little bit. uh, If you got more talent around him. Um, I think of the guys who are these scorers, I think there's an argument to be made that if you, in a one-on-one situation, all these guys on these lists, one, 10 through three, all these point guards talking about, he may be the best one-on-one isolation player on the list already. And I think he, is he younger than all of them? What's his age? He's 22. Uh, Mitchell's 24 already. Trey Young is 22. Uh, oh, John Moran's 21. Um, yeah, I just think, I think that's like the big, the fact that that's, that's a big part of it is that he, can get to the basket in so many different ways. And now he can shoot the ball a little bit. So I'm reading um, Sam saying that the shot looks a bit funky coming out of his hand. You know, I think, I think uh, it may look that way, but I think his whole movements look different, but I think a lot of that is like kind of, we're trained to look for certain things and what a shot or a move looks like. And we're not, we don't have a great job. We don't do a great job of appreciating sort of the end the end move we're, we're still too biased towards the, the first move uh the first steps over the last steps so um what you do to end your move is just as athletic and just as something you can work on as what you do at the beginning uh him and fox are the two with the most outlier physical skills i assume what is fox 
Fox's outlier physical skill. Um, I guess this is um, what, like his lateral quickness. Um, oh, yes, and it's his speed with the ball, but Ja is just as fast. Uh, ah, good question. Um, prospects are interesting. Um, I don't know exactly what to make of all these guys. I just know that um, I think Shea is also a bit of a late bloomer, and he's I think he's improved the most year over year more than these guys have. Uh, and so I wonder if that's due to our inability to spot. There's almost like a, a similar thing going on with Luca coming out of into the draft as Shea, where you can't really, he doesn't have like sort of the same athletic profiles. Um, and so therefore you, you don't really see the athleticism that he possesses. Um, even though it, it's there, it's just not in the way that you would associate. Um, but that's a topic that we'll have to go in the book, which I need to work on. Um, Last thought, it looks like most of you guys are leaving. Um, we'll do these, I think, every week. Let's say 3 o'clock on Tuesdays. We're going to probably we're gonna try to have some new um, podcasts for real. I know I've been, like, kind of neglecting all that. So we will do that. Um, and I guess nobody asked about Star Wars, so we'll have to do that next week. But, um, yeah, I got some High Republic questions. Anybody interested, definitely hit me up. So anyway, that was the Limited Upside live chat. Uh, today is Tuesday, March 2nd. We'll put this up as a podcast for those who missed it. Um, this is going to be a thing we're doing on the locker room app. It seems relatively easy to use. So that's about that. Thank you guys for tuning in. Um, we will talk next week.